Welcome to today's uh, Conversatio podcast. I'm Dr. Ron Thomas, Associate Professor of Theology at Belmont Abbey College. Welcome today. And also, I would like to welcome our special guest, Father Robert Nixon, from the New Norcia Monastery in Western Australia. He's with us to give us a concert and lecture this evening, and we thought we would uh, begin that whole process of learning with this conversation today. So, Father Nixon, uh, very glad to have you with us here at the Abbey. Welcome. Thank you very much, Rod. It's a great pleasure for me to be here. Before we started taping, we were talking about our common interest in Benedictine education, the, uh, the connection between the love of God and the love of learning, and I was finding out more about the specific um, charism or the specific activity of your monastery, uh, but I'd love to hear more about that. Well, Ron, uh, Benedictine monasteries have been, since their very inception, centers of learning. One of the key phrases which St. Benedict uses in his rule to describe monastic life is a school of the Lord's service. And in using this term school, he's harking back to the philosophical schools of the, of the classical world. A school was uh, an academy, a gathering of like-minded people to share ideas to enrich their mental and spiritual life. And this is very much the model which he used for his own Benedictine monasteries. These are schools of the Lord's service underpinned by Christian spirituality. And in the rule of Benedict, uh, there are a couple of hours every day which are to be dedicated to sacred reading. And this included study in its broadest sense. So Benedictine monasteries functioned as centres of learning throughout the entire Middle Ages. One of the main roles of Benedictine monasteries was uh, the transmission of literature. Before the invention of the printing press, monasteries were occupied with copying of books, manuscripts by hand. If a family wanted their son or daughter to learn to read and write, they would generally send them to a Benedictine monastery for a few years to master this skill. And of course, throughout the Middle Ages, reading and writing meant reading and writing in the Latin language. So this um, underpins our Benedictine spirituality and I, it manifests itself in schools, in universities, within our contemporary world. And I've often been struck as a person whose um, current life is in monasticism, whose previous life was uh, in the academic world, that the greatest scholars often have something of the monk about them. And conversely, um, amongst monks, um, scholarship, study, the love of learning is, is a vital part of our charism. Our own particular monastery was established by Spanish monks in the Western Australian outback back in 1846. This was very early. It makes us the oldest continually existing religious community in Australia. And we were founded only about 15 years after the foundation of the, of the colony of Western Australia itself. So our, our founding monk, Rosendo Salvado, he, he came from Spain. He found his own monastery closed down by the revolutionary governments in Spain at that time. And he had a, a mission to transmit the Catholic faith. But in a way, this wasn't his, although this was his kind of ultimate imperative, on a practical level, um, his first step was to try to teach the indigenous people the skills they needed 
to adapt to um, Western civilization, which which he realized was inevitably going to enroach upon their traditional lives at that stage. So from the very beginning, um, our monastery has focused on the education of particularly the indigenous people, of teaching them what they needed to know and reading, writing, uh, above all, giving them entrance into, into Western culture. So this uh, educational imperative was something very important. And one of the distinctive features of our founder, Rosendo Salvado, was he didn't see it as a matter of stamping out the indigenous culture and language, as many did. In fact, he took the greatest care to record the uh, riches and treasures of the native culture, to compile a dictionary of their language and so forth, to make sure that they continued to follow as many of their traditional laws and customs as possible. Um, at the same time, he was teaching them the English language, the Spanish language, the Latin language, and with a, a remarkable degree of success, I think, which perhaps was unique in the Australian missionary experience. One of the things which he greatly believed in was the power of music to, uh, to transmit culture and knowledge. And um, many of the earlier settlers back in the 19th century were, were absolutely astonished to find that there were indigenous string and brass ensembles, something which most of the other missionaries had, hadn't even tried. They, they had assumed it would be completely impossible to do anything like that. Oh, that's, that's a fascinating story. I'm uh, impressed by the early founding of your community, too. Uh, you were founded, I think, about 30 years before Belmont Abbey was. We were founded in 1876, and we think that we're old, but uh, you, you reach uh, earlier than we do. And also, um, the particular foresight of your founder to want to preserve those customs of the people, sort of an anthropologist theologian, he sounded like. Uh, he was very much an anthropologist. So he compiled the earliest dictionary of the Ewart language, which is the uh, native people of that area. Um, he also made the very first transcriptions into Western musical notation of the traditional Aboriginal music. And uh, these things are, are still in existence. So he was quite a, quite a remarkable character and, and very highly esteemed by the indigenous people of the area. That's a lovely story. It really is. And music, of course, reaches past language, right, into the very soul. And uh, so uh, opening up the soul for all kinds of truth uh, through the use of music is, a, is a, brilliant, a brilliant strategy and one that seems to unite anyone and everyone. It is indeed, Ron, because it's something which, which transcends particularities of, of language um, and to some degree culture and, and brings people together and of course the most important truths and lessons which we have to learn are precisely those ones which transcend all words. Yes, indeed. Well, um, it is an amazing thing uh, as you were expressing that education and the Benedictine spirituality seem to go very naturally together. I mean, it is just a providential thing that uh, out of St. Benedict's charism comes the, our entire Western tradition of scholarship and intellectual life. And um, I'd be interested also to hear a little bit about your pilgrimage. You, you mentioned that you were uh, in academics and uh, before even going into the monastery. And you've carried on a lively uh, intellectual and academic trade uh, since going to the monastery and have some artifacts to uh, 
witness to that. I'd, I'd love yes, to hear more uh, about that. Yes, Rod. Well, um, by, by prior life, since, um, since I was a fairly young child, I felt a deep calling to the service of the church. But I had in my life this other great passion, which was music. So um, when I finished school, I, I, you know, I, I wasn't ready to go into the service of the church at that stage. I wanted to pursue my career as a musician, which I did for a number of years, um, first as a performer and a composer, and then um, increasingly as uh, as a teacher, both in in universities and schools. And um, you know, this uh, performance of music, as well as the um, study of it, the the analysis, was something which I really loved. And I did this for a number of years, but at a certain point in my life. Um, I felt that I had um, achieved everything which I was really wanting to in the world. And uh, this was when I about reached my 33rd year. And at this point, I realized that I've basically lived for myself for as long as Christ lived to save the world. And I thought, well, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? It was an important turning point. And at this stage, um, my my early sentiment, my early uh desire to commit myself to the service of the church uh, was reawakened. My first step, though, wasn't to join a Benedictine monastery. Uh, my first step was to enter a diocesan seminary because I knew a lot of diocesan priests and I knew the ministry they did and I knew how greatly diocesan priests were needed, particularly in Australia where there's something of a vocations crisis in the Catholic Church. Uh, but after a few years, uh, towards the end of the studies for the priesthood, I felt called to go for a retreat to a Benedictine monastery. And I went to New Norcia, which um, was geographically about the furthest place um, away from where I was in Australia. And I was instantly struck by it, by, um, you know, by the, the antiquity of the place, by the, the beauty of the uh, Spanish architecture, by the uh, by, the wonderful way the liturgy was done, in particular the preservation of of so many of the traditional elements of monastic liturgy, the Gregorian hymns and antiphons and so forth. And um, I also felt a very strong sympathy for the founder Rosendo Salvado. Now I mentioned before that my own background was as as a musician, as a pianist. In fact, he was also a very accomplished pianist and composer. And um, I felt called by God to join this monastery. But it was a difficult decision because it involved saying goodbye to my home diocese. Um, but after long discernment, I, I decided to join, which is what brought me there. And since I've become a monk, you know, I've taken very seriously uh, Benedict's um, uh, emphasis on sacred reading within the rule. And uh, sometimes this sacred reading is interpreted in a, in a somewhat narrow sense as Lectio Divina. People don't realize that this phrase Lectio Divina is actually something which only came into popular use in the 20th century. St. Benedict's own understanding of sacred reading was study in its broadest sense. So um, education and literary education are you know intrinsically linked you could say almost that all education is at a certain point literary education even if it's mathematical or scientific because it involves learning a language learning the grammar of this particular discourse um, well for me i was i was struck by the library which we had at new norcia 
It has over 80,000 volumes and has been being collected since the 1840s. Um, our earliest books go back to about 1500. So it's a really remarkable collection. Um, and so much of it, of course, was in the Latin language. I was very fortunate that um, I had a fairly secure grounding in Latin from my seminary days. This was um, under the pontificate of Benedict XVI when he had encouraged that or um, reinforced what the church's teaching on that was uh, all along, that it was an important part of priestly formation. So I, um, I, I immersed myself in the writings of the saints, in particular the monastic saints, and I took such a great pleasure in this and I realize that there are so many treasures um, within this immense corpus of literature that I felt called to share them with the contemporary reading public. And um, I, saw, I, I worked through a number of translations and then came across Tan Publishing uh, here in North Carolina. And I was uh, very delighted that they were, they were happy uh, very enthusiastic about cooperating with this project of bringing to light these undiscovered treasures, which now form the uh, Tan Resurrection book series. That is a lovely idea. So these are books that really have not seen English translation before. That's absolutely correct, Ron. Mm -hmm. And this surprises some people. They, when they hear that works by saints like St. Ambrose, St. Anselm, and so forth have never been translated. But in fact, there's works even by Thomas Aquinas and St. Bonaventure, which have still to be translated into English. So there really is a huge corpus of Latin literature. And the imperative to translate it didn't really exist until about 100 years ago. Because in previous centuries, um, educated readers, the kind of readers who would want to read this type of thing, generally could read Latin. Yes, yes. Well, it's a different world. And in one sense, it's good that you might have a wider reading public for these translations than was you know, present when everybody was simply reading Latin. It's a kind of democratization, I guess, but let's hope it's a good one. Um, uh, sounds like you uh, really have an amazing future ahead of you because I su suspect there are more works from where these came from, right? Very much so, very much so. There's almost a I wouldn't say, an, not, of course, not literally an infinite amount, but there's much more that a single person could work their way through um, in their lifetime. So, uh, so yes, yeah, some very interesting things coming forth in the future through Tan books. When you were translating, let's just take, for instance, someone like St. Anselm. Uh, what did you, uh, what new did you discover about your old friend Anselm from the particular works that you've translated now into English? Well, uh, I was familiar with Anselm, as I guess a lot of people are, from his uh, Monologian and Proslogian, which are his principal theological works, um, in which he presents, amongst other things, his famous ontological argument, um, a classic proof for the existence of God. Um, and he, I was familiar also with some of his other theological uh, writings, uh, Deo Somo, Why God Became Man, and so forth. But I never actually read his purely devotional works. And one thing a lot of people don't realize about, about St. Anselm is that his, his theology, while it's done in a very uh, disciplined type of way, very logical and clear way, um, 
it's underpinned by this uh, very uh, fiery and ardent mysticism, particularly uh, Marian mysticism. And one of the works which I've translated by him is um, a dialogue between himself and the Virgin Mary concerning the Passion of Christ. And uh, this really puts a whole new perspective, I think, on, for, for most readers of Anselm. Yeah, that I, I can well imagine. It's always been my impression of St. Anselm that he was a marvelous pastor and spiritual presence, you know, while he was Archbishop of Canterbury. and, and Very and, much so. And in, in Beck as well. And uh, so it's, it's really exciting to think that we would have some access to that spiritual heart of the man, you know, beyond the stories of his, yeah. his career and so forth. Yes, yes. And he wrote uh, a lot of his spirituality is, is Marian. He wrote a a Marian Psalter, a number of collection of, of hymns and poems to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Um, so he's a yeah, absolutely fantastic author. Another, another work of his which is, uh, which is out at the moment um, is entitled The Glories of Heaven. The original Latin title was The Beatitude of the Celestial Homeland, but uh, <laughs> that's obviously a little bit cumbersome. And in this one, he, he talks about what it's going to be like in heaven. He begins by giving the traditional idea that it's beyond anything we can conceive, but then he's asked for more details, and then thinks, well, let's systematically think about everything which the human heart desires and considers to be good and extrapolate it to its greatest possible degree to get a sense of what it's going to be like in the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that's that's a, that's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. Uh, yeah, I mean, for a lot of us, and you you rightly uh, said this, our view of Anselm has been kind of overly academized. You know, it's a, it's very much the intellectual um, precursor to Saint Thomas Aquinas. That's usually how Anselm is presented. But this uh, gives us a particular different different view on uh, on his on his soul, rich as it uh, appears to be. Um, what other um, uh, spiritual classics uh, have you translated besides Anselm's? Well, uh, another one which I have done is um, is a book called The Crown of the Virgin by St. Ildefonsus of Toledo, who is uh, not a particularly well-known saint at all. My encounter with him came about because at our own monastery we, we have a college called St. Ildefonsus College. And uh, no one seemed to know really anything about this saint apart from his name. So I, I was curious. I looked him up and explored his writing. He was a, um, a 7th century saint in Spain. And um, he was a, a great champion of the doctrine of the perpetual virginity. And according to tradition, the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to him and presented him with a chasuble to celebrate all of her feasts in. And the work which I translated of his is a work called The Crown of the Virgin. And in this, he uh, imaginatively fashions this crown consisting of gemstones, stars and flowers and uses these as images to reflect upon different aspects of the beauty and sanctity of the Queen of Heaven. Oh, that's, that's fascinating as well. And so um, did he uh, have a, a directly Benedictine uh, connection or not? Yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, yes, we, we classify him as a Benedictine uh, saint. Before he became uh, 
the Archbishop of Toledo. He was mm. um, he was an ab he was an abbot there of a monastery. Uh, one of the interesting things about the Benedictine Order, which a lot of people don't realize, is the Benedictine Order isn't actually like the Franciscans or the Jesuits. It was never kind of canonically formed as an order. So um, basically, um, all Western monks are more or less classified as Benedictines, although they might not actually have been working with the rule of St. Benedict. So, for example, in Spain, there were other monastic rules floating around. Um, and there were rules, different rules floating around in Ireland and so forth. It wasn't until a little bit later, until the time of Charlemagne, that the rule of Benedict was, he attempted to mandate that as the, as the rule for all monasteries in Europe. Until then, so the, the, the distinction between who is actually a Benedictine and who isn't is a little bit blurred. So is someone like Isidore of Seville a Benedictine? Some sources will say yes, he is. Other sources, you know, will say no. Or someone like Gregory the Great. We count him as one of our Benedictine saints, but he certainly wouldn't have put OSB after his name. So it, it, was, a, it was a concept which emerged uh, only to a certain extent in emulation of the mendicant orders, the idea that there is a uniform um, order of St. Benedict. And even today, the order of St. Benedict is not a, a, a single juridical entity. There are congregations of different monasteries and and each monastery is, uh, to a certain degree, autonomous. That's fascinating. So, I mean, Benedictine is as Benedictine does, essentially. Exactly, exactly. We're Benedictine in the sense that we follow the principles of the rule of St. Benedict. And from one Benedictine monastery to another, there's, there's a, a huge diversity of different observances. Mm -hmm. How close to, uh, to your monastery are the observances here at Belmont Abbey? Uh, well, you know, um, I, I'm struck both by similarities and by differences. So you're in a very different situation to, to we are. You're, you were here surrounded by this uh, beautiful college and quite close to, a, to an urban center. Um, we, on the other hand, are, um, are very isolated. We're out in the middle of nowhere. The closest big city is about uh, 100 miles away. And we don't have anything like a schools or universities operating there at the moment. And of course, the way we uh, we live, uh, there are still remnants of the Spanish influence. Uh, although our last Spanish monk passed by away about ten years ago, so there, are, I mean, there's a, a certain a, a spiritual communion that we're all endeavouring to live the same vocation. But of course, the the details of the way we do things are. Uh, a little bit different here and there. Yeah, certainly. And these differences are actually very enlightening because it's it's how communities grow and develop. Yeah. Um, of course, you know that in the United States, uh, there was a, a good deal of reliance on Benedictine communities to provide the education, right, for yeah. Catholic, especially immigrants and so forth. And that's been part of our distinctive history and sort of explains, as you notated, the college built around our monastery. Yeah. I often wonder... Um, in contradistinction to your monastery, whether our monks sometimes find that they don't have the silence and the solitude that they might desire in order to pursue their monastic vocation. Yeah, uh, very much. And I think that's, Ron, that's an experience of a lot of monks because people often 
They feel called to the monastic vocation with this desire for silence and solitude, and then they find that there are ministerial calls upon them. And this actually was the experience of a lot of great Benedictine saints throughout history. One of the things which St. Gregory the Great uh, often complained about, that after he'd been elected Pope, he lost his opportunities for, for, um, for personal prayer, for meditation. And um, certainly uh, Boniface, the apostle of the Germans, was a Benedictine monk and mm -hmm. was thrust into missionary activity. The same with our own founder. He found himself in a part of the world where he wouldn't expect. Oh, I would suggest that this is actually uh, quite a healthy tension to have um, because it is a case of God calling us to these ministries. And um, it's always good if our desire to pray exceeds the amount of time we actually do pray so um, if if when we finish praying we we, we feel you know I, I wish i had more of this that's actually a good thing because it represents um, ultimately our desire for the uh, for our celestial homeland which is never perfectly fulfilled in this world so um, the balance between ministerial work and the contemplative life um, I think is by its nature one which never sits quite perfectly. But then in this fallen world, nothing really ever sits quite perfectly. And, and that really is the way it should be because it's a reminder that we're only pilgrims here. Yeah, terrific point. Yeah, so the, the, the whole tension of those, those things uh, provides one with a constant reminder, right? And, yeah, and we find it in the life of Christ himself often when he would go off into the solitude and then he would be uh, find himself that the crowds had followed, and he was called to the ministry of evangelization instead. Absolutely right. Well, that is, of course, I think one of the hidden charisms of the Benedictine way is uh, evangelization. Uh, as I've often said to my students, uh, you know, um, the Benedictines didn't find others; others found them. But it was always uh, like a magnet, right, for people's attention. And uh, the Benedictines were able to do a kind of situated, powerful evangelization to populations around them everywhere yeah. they went. Yeah, and that's reflected in, in our charism of stability. And I think that that is the case with Benedictine schools and universities, which spring up around monasteries. And, um, and hopefully that... Uh, spirituality of, of stability can be infused into the educational institutions which they um, which they administer or which they uh, serve. I think um, I mentioned before that a lot of the best scholars um, have something of of the monk about them, um, and I think this is something which is particularly important for students, particularly students who are who are residential, living in college, to think well. Here I am living in an intentional community, a community which basically has the same goals, um, the, the advancement of knowledge and the glorification of God. And the student timetable and everything has so much in common with a monastic timetable. So, um, you know, I would really encourage students to think about, um, I mentioned that in the past parents would send their, their sons and daughters to Benedictine monasteries to learn to read and write, but also to benefit from the discipline of this stability and regularity of life for a few years. And I think ideally college life should be, should have a lot of lot in common with the monastic life. Yes, and it, it intrinsically does. Um, just on another note, I often try to uh, stress to the students 
the position of leisure, right, and privilege that they enjoy by being here at Belmont Indeed. Abbey College, uh, because they uh, they have this opportunity to pursue Indeed. what their soul is hungry for. Yes, and Ron, uh, and so unfortunately, this privilege of of uh, leisure is something which we only realize we had in retrospect. You know uh, that we we look back in our future lives when they become busy with either family or work and so forth, and, and you long for the days when you had you know, free mornings, free afternoons, um, to do nothing but browse through a library to do some reading or reflection or artwork or whatever it is. Um, and, you know, this is so important. Um, I think so much of our learning happens not only when we're in classrooms or doing assignments and things we're required to do, but in our in our casual browsing through through libraries, through books, through our, through our taking our time over things which we're not going to be assessed for, which we're not going to get any credit for. <laughs> and, um, and I think what we learn in those times is, is often what really stays with us and what can enrich us the most. Yes, I agree with you. And it's also the case that uh, here at Belmont Abbey College that they have beautiful environs to be leisurely in, don't they? Uh, yes, yes. I, um, I was able to spend a little bit of time strolling around the campus here, and uh, you know, I was absolutely struck by, by the great beauty of the grounds, um, by the lovely climate here, and and also by the the, the wonderful buildings and the, the the wonderful layout of the place. So it's a, a lovely atmosphere for learning. Uh, yeah, very conducive, I think, to to spiritual and human growth. Yes, and I think architecture is one of the most uh, unheralded sources of education because buildings can be ennobling, can't they? Just the they, way they're structured. They can, they can. And um, I think there's something particularly lovely about um, about older buildings because we live in a society in which so much is transient and ephemeral. And to know that by studying at this institution, you're, you're studying in something which goes back, a tradition which goes back generations and generations, both locally and then on a deeper level goes back hundreds and thousands of years, to be part of that. And to see the in context the work which we do uh, of one day is a part of this eternal story. Yes. Our time is hastening on, but I wanted to bring up one other issue, and that is um, the issue of beauty. Uh, beauty is a transcendental. It's sort of laced around all the things we've been talking about today. Um, I'd be interested to have your uh, thoughts about beauty, either with relationship to music or you know, to any other aspect of Benedictine consciousness. Yes. So uh, beauty is a, is a concept which everyone recognizes and desires, but when we try to define precisely what it is, it becomes very difficult because we use the adjective beautiful in so many different contexts and apply it to so many different um, objects in different ways. But uh, ultimately, beauty, I think, is what raises our mind up to the transcendent, either through some, through some vision of, of harmony um, or proportion or combination of colors, or combination of sounds and so forth. So it's something we could recognize but not necessarily define. And uh, I think this is very much an indicator of the presence of the divine. So we talk about the ultimate quality of God uh, as being goodness, truth. Um, and uh, But I think beauty is as powerful an attribute, 
divine attribute as as either goodness or truth or compassion or mercy. So I think this is something which we should uh, consciously cultivate in our lives, in our environment, in whatever form of work that we're going to do, because it partakes of the eternal. So I think it's such an important thing if you're writing an essay on any subject, try to make it beautiful. Whatever you do, try to make it beautiful, because this taps into, into God himself, into the eternal glory. Yes, a home, a garden, anything that you would undertake uh, could be made beautiful. Indeed. And, and thus sort of offer a passive kind of uh, glorification of God. Indeed, indeed, yeah. And, and this beauty isn't a synonym for nice. It can, be, can take a multitude of different forms. So it brings, to, brings this uh, kind of primal creative um, energy to the fore. Yeah, lovely, lovely. I um, I think our time might be slipping away from us, but I just wanted to thank you ever so much from our hearts that you're here at the Abbey uh, this week and that you are going to give us uh, some wonderful food for thought and growth this evening. And um, we wish you well, and we'll c- continue to hold you in our prayers. And if we would do the same, we would very, very much appreciate it. Indeed, Ron. Thank you. Uh, God bless you and God bless all of your listeners. Please subscribe to this podcast. Until next time, God bless. Bye-bye.